0: The People's Constitution, The Path to Empowerment of Australians in a 21st Century Democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Part 1. From Representative Democracy to a People's Democracy. Finding the Path to Empowerment of Australians. Chapter 1. The Limits of Australia's Representative Democracy part 1 after 120 years of our constitution as a federation of states australians might assume we live in a free and open democratic society indeed annual surveys by freedom house tell us that we do but if that is so we live there precariously because our constitution makes almost no provisions for our freedoms and is unique among democracies in having no charter of human rights. As constitutional law experts George Williams and Daniel Reynolds have observed, quote, Australia is the only democratic country in the world without a national charter of rights. Indeed, among all nations, democratic or not, very few lack a charter. Apart from Australia, the only other such nations are the Vatican City, a theocratic monarchy, and Brunei, an authoritarian sultanate with a record of human rights abuses, Because this Charter of Rights is absent in our constitution, Australia's version of representative democracy provides its people with nothing in terms of self-determination, a human right which, as I will show, is an essential mechanism of freedom and well-being. But even if a charter of rights were to be inserted into Australian law, this would not of itself turn our democracy into one in which each person is equally free to determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. This is because representative democracies, especially if they tend towards exclusion of the voices of their members, have a way of shaving off the rights and freedoms to which people may assume they are entitled. Regardless of the countries in which they might be established, representative democracies do not come as an unalloyed gift. They can, and often do, create far more subjection than liberty. In Australia's case, this subjection is magnified relative to liberty, not just because of an absence of rights, but because our constitution provides very little in protection from abuse of power. While those who are fortunate enough to be counted among the elected in our parliaments may protest that the constitution and laws made under it will protect the electors by prescribing and limiting the conditions on which power may be exercised, the fact remains that the constitution and all other laws themselves are made exclusively by those elected to power. This is especially dangerous when the constitution itself does not state that those we elect to power are responsible to the people and does not stipulate values and principles by which the powerful may make laws. In the absence of those values and principles, parliaments can and do make laws which, insofar as they create inequalities before the law, are horribly unjust and immoral, and which can and do allow abuses of power most Australians would not think possible in our enlightened society. In constitutions that are silent on values, like Australia's, the rule of law, about which Western leaders boast and which some have of late taken to baselessly asserting is available only in a democracy, is not primarily disposed to protect we, the electors. Inasmuch as it exists at all, which some would say is doubtful, it is set up to protect the elected. Under the so-called rule of law, the elected may do anything that is not made illegal by their laws. They are the law and are therefore above it, no less so than the autocratic governments they accuse of not respecting the rule of law. In the 21st century, multi-party parliaments, no less than one-party states, have generally displayed a stubborn reticence to make laws which bind them in ways they do not wish to be bound, This is perhaps most evident in Australia in the refusal in 2020 of elected members of both major parties, Labour and Liberal National, to establish a binding code of conduct for federal parliamentarians. They have also not refrained from unmaking laws which bind them in ways they no longer wish to be bound. In Australia's case, this is perhaps most evident in amendments made to the Migration Act in 2004 which allowed for the indefinite detention of stateless people and detention of children in appalling conditions in immigration facilities in contravention of human rights treaties to which Australia was, and still is, a signatory. Little wonder that trust in Australian governments has dropped during the 21st century. When Australians see what their ruthless governments are prepared to do to other people's children, many will instinctively fret about what such governments may do to their own. They fret all the more, and trust all the less, when they see the unstinting efforts of some governments to deny the right of the young to a sustainable future in the face of climate change. Finally, Australian governments have not refrained from making new laws which limit or even extinguish any power the people may have had, or thought they had, in terms of basic civil and political rights. Between 2002 and 2021, Australian governments enacted more than 80 pieces of legislation limiting freedom of expression, freedom of assembly and protest, freedom of information, freedom of the press, whistleblower protections, rights to open trial and the presumption of innocence, rights not to be detained without charge, rights to privacy, and finally, these laws limited the public's right to know of possible misconduct and illegal conduct by elected parliamentarians and government officials. Citing national security as a justification, this legislative program was a full-on assault on powerless Australians, and therefore on democracy itself, since a democracy isn't a democracy if citizens have no civil powers or rights. In place of our hitherto relatively open democracy, this massive legislative program entrenched a coercive and secret state, one denying conventions on rights to equality before the law. The programme reduced almost every right that may have been taken for granted by Australians under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. No quarter was given to the Australian people in this 20-year onslaught on their freedom to determine whether such legislation would safeguard their democracy by striking a reasonable balance between genuine national security concerns and the public's right to know when the government is and is not acting in the public interest. These instances of parliamentary power in lawmaking are not isolated. The lawmaking system, which is governed by Australia's constitution, is infused through and through with opportunities for federal parliaments to undermine it and to do so with little if any need for recourse to the Australian people and sometimes without any need to submit to effective check by those other entities established under the constitution, such as the states and the judicature, entities that were meant to act as checks on the unreasonable or unintended use or concentration of power. Over the 120 years of the Australian Constitution's life, laws and policies have been changed by the Federal Parliament, some of which in effect allow for complete reversals of arrangements made under the Constitution as they were intended in 1901. This is not of itself always harmful. In a way, it could be considered a strength of the constitution that it has allowed the nation more easily to move with the times, respond to emergencies or give effect to reasonable and more efficient distributions of power. For instance, it has been possible to centralise the power to collect income tax, gradually taking it away from the states and settling it solely in the Commonwealth. This and other redistributions have been possible by negotiation between those parties who have power under the Constitution, namely the Executive Government of the Commonwealth, the Federal Parliament, the Governor-General, the Judicature and the States, notably not the people. And those redistributions of power have been possible without amendment to the Constitution itself. Indeed, so much has changed without the need for amendment of the Constitution that it is as if there is, and always was, very little in it, that lawmakers couldn't get around, should they so wish. That so much has changed in the arrangement of powers without the need for change in the constitution itself should give electors the tip that something might be amiss with it. It might look miraculously prescient or cleverly flexible, but equally it can look as though it is structured so that the permission of the people... Is not necessary to achieve almost any change that the powerful may desire. It is also likely that there is now very little in it that actually reflects the way we really operate as a sovereign power in the 21st century. It doesn't even mention basic institutions such as the office of prime minister and cabinet, let alone the recently invented national cabinet, and it doesn't mention universal suffrage or democracy. In fact, the creation in 2020 of the National Cabinet and the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, the latter complete with confidentiality protections as if its unelected corporate sector members had the status of cabinet ministers, were living examples of how new institutions can easily be created and can even be stacked with corporate stakeholders whose conflicts of interest, compared to the national interest, need not be made clear. So The Constitution does not authorise or protect the institutions we might assume are central to organised democracy and stable government, like an elected Prime Minister, and at the same time, it doesn't prohibit the creation of institutions which could, and do, easily threaten democracy. It certainly doesn't prohibit unrestrained corporate power, which in today's transnational corporate world we are increasingly coming to recognise as a direct threat to national democracies. As such, it should be all the more alarming that one type of power the Constitution does permit is autocratic power that may be exercised by the Governor-General. The Constitution enshrines the notably unelected Governor-General not just as a symbolic head of state, but as an ultimately powerful decider on laws and on the tenure of governments, parliaments and particularly Prime Ministers, and even to some extent on military enablement and war. More than that, should she or he choose, a Governor-General is permitted, or not prohibited, by the wording of the Constitution, to exercise mysterious unspecified powers, the so-called reserve powers, that are not even granted to the Queen or King under British law. When Queen Victoria signed the Australian Constitution into law, she herself had nothing like the power that she vested in the Governor-General. Literal readings of constitutional provisions involving the powers of the Governor-General establish quite clearly that Australia is not a democracy. We may call it that, but our laws do not make it so, and the fact that we have elections means nothing. Despite what Freedom House may assume, elections, even free and fair ones, do not a democracy make. In law, and in reality, Australia is nothing more or less than than a constitutional monarchy. It is a sovereign state which might be crudely but not inaccurately described as a Hobbesian state, the type of state conceived by Thomas Hobbes in 1651 in his seminal work Leviathan. This is the so-called modern state in which all power is turned over willingly and in full by the people to a sovereign who shall decide for them, As the ultimate authority. In Thomas Hobbes' view, that sovereign was preferably a single person. In later versions of that state, the sovereign frequently became a parliament. In Australia's case, though, While the parliamentary model was selected, strange and even scary remnants of the all-powerful single sovereign were nevertheless retained, and so, by virtue of our constitution, 21st century Australians have a state with the equivalent of a monarch with even more potential autocratic control than a British king or queen, and who can certainly defy convention to override parliamentary power. That type of modern state is not a democracy, it is anything but. In the circumstances, it should not be surprising that the word democracy is not used anywhere in the Australian Constitution. The fact is, there is almost no resemblance between the way the Constitution actually says sovereignty can operate in Australia and the way modern Australians may have come to assume it is or will be operated, that is, as a supposed free and open democracy where their voices can count. In summary, the Australian Constitution might not be unfairly labelled as nothing more than an antiquated mess that we have learned to ignore and work around. In the case of centralising of taxing powers, this may not be too dangerous, but the Constitution's relevance to our lives and its influence over our political and governance arrangements has, decade by decade, been slowly unravelled, so much so that By 2004, eminent constitutional lawyer Helen Irving was able to publish a book called Five Things to Know About the Australian Constitution, in which she disclosed that two of the five things we need to know are that, quote, the Constitution does not say what it means, and the Constitution does not mean what it says, unquote. It might be funny, were it not for the fact that two of the other three things we need to know are that, quote, the Constitution fails to say things that might be important and the Constitution says certain things that contradict each other, In the circumstances, it could not be argued that it is unfair to call the Australian Constitution a mess and quite a dangerous one from the point of view of providing sufficient checks and balances in the distribution of powers necessary to underpin a sound, fair and stable democracy. While it persists as a mess, the Australian Constitution is functioning to ensure not only that the people are locked out of participation in their own governance, but that laws can be and are being made which would be taken by most 21st century Australians to be abhorrent to them and to democracy itself. A graphic example of this was distilled for Australians in 1998 in the High Court's judgment in relation to the validity of the Hindmarsh Island Bridge Act. That judgment was remarkable, not merely because it ruled against the Indigenous plaintiffs, who had asserted that the act establishing the bridge was invalid, but because it did not refute the Commonwealth's contention that there is a race's power, section 5126, in the Constitution, which enables Nazi race laws to be made, including, for instance, laws banning people from working in certain professions or from attending particular schools on the grounds of race. In this case, the Federal Solicitor General, Gavin Griffith QC, had unapologetically argued before the court that the race's power is, quote, infused with a power of adverse operation, unquote, meaning it can be used to discriminate against a race as easily as in favour of a race. And more than that, the High Court could, quote, do nothing about it, unquote. In the end, the High Court split on the issue of whether the race's power could be used to adversely discriminate against a race, and the question remains unresolved, thanks once again in large part to the lack of values and principles in the Constitution, But the Hindmarsh Island Bridge Act was upheld by the judges, indicating the constitution allows that Indigenous can certainly be discriminated against, and even worse, if that's possible, that the power of the parliament, at least when it comes to its right to embed and legitimise racism, may not be constrained by the judiciary. When this judgement in relation to the application of the racist power under section 5126 is set alongside consideration of racist powers embedded in section 25 of the constitution headed provisions as to races disqualified from voting, Australians might well be justified in taking fright that there is still a power in the constitution to exclude a citizen from voting on the basis of race and that the withdrawal of the right to vote may also not be constrained by the judiciary. No race, even a white one, is protected by the Australian Constitution from possible loss of voting rights, so much for the comfort and dependability of our representative democracy. In its essential disregard for human rights and for the will of the people who, under its terms, have no other choice than to consent to be governed by this system of representation – The Australian Constitution is disposed to shift power away from the people and towards an unaccountable tiny few. This is obviously an arrangement jealously guarded by those who manage to seize power, but this should not deter us from the need to rebalance the way power may be rightly shared. However, if the people of Australia are to increase their capacity to exercise a greater share of power, a rightful share, within their system of representative democracy, it is as well to understand more about where power can and does disproportionately accumulate under the current constitution. In the next sections, I will sketch out the sort of overweening power the constitution makes possible and suggest a new arrangement for a fairer sharing of power where abuse by any elites who capture the state may be moderated.